Hi everyone, welcome to the True Crime Podcast, where we mainly focus on San Diego cases. My name is Arena. I'm Renette. Hi, Arena. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. I'm glad we're both nice and healthy now this time since we were trying to record before, but then I was sick and then you were sick and now we're both good. We're both well now. Yay. (laughs) Feels like it's been a long time. I think it's been maybe a month or so. I know. I listened to your um, episode that you did on your own about Mm -hmm. that case and um, I was going to ask you like if there are going to be any updates soon or not yet or if you're going to like. Yeah, once things start coming out about this case, then that's when I'll go on kind of like the Jade Jinx episode that I did. Yeah. So that's when I'll hop on um, and give updates on that. Okay. Yeah, that was really interesting. I was like, dang, I didn't even know that was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I a lot of people didn't know, at least like people, um, some of my tenants who listen to the podcast were like, I never even knew this was going on like yeah. this year. So yeah, but today I have a Sandy, another San Diego case. Yeah. And I've been wanting to do this, um, an episode on this case for a long time and finally got around to finishing all my research and all that sort of stuff. And I'm going to discuss the case on... James Huberty, who was uh, the McDonald's killer in San Ysidro. Oh, my God. From like the 70s? Was that from the 70s or 90s? Um, 1984. Oh, 80. Okay. I was in the middle. (laughs) I was on (laughs) too soon and too late. Oh, okay. 84. (laughs) Dang. Oh, my gosh. That that was one of the cases on the list of like um, San Diego ones that we hadn't really touched upon. But that is a big, big case. So it is. Yeah, I'm excited. It took to quite it. a bit of time just to get like everything in order. Um, I'm hoping I'm not leaving anything out. Um, but anyways, this is what I got. So okay. we'll start with talking about you know his upbringing and all that sort of stuff. So James Huberty was born on October 11th, 1942, in Canton, Ohio. Mm-hmm. He was the younger of two children born to Earl and Evelone Huberty. When James was three years old, he contracted polio. And because of that, he had to wear these steel and leather braces on both of his legs. And because of him um, wearing those braces, he had a huge improvement. Like he was able to make a big recovery, but he was left with a mild limp. Oh, okay. And he was teased about that, sadly, right? Little kids could be little assholes. But um his parents were super religious and they regularly they regularly attended a United Methodist church. Mm. And in 1950, so James was 7 years old, his father Earl, he purchased a farm in Mount Eaton. It was 155 acres and super rural. <laughs> I hate that word. I hate that word so much. Um now, his mom, Evelone, she wasn't happy. She didn't want to live out in the middle of nowhere. Um, she hated it so much that she even refused to go and look at the property. And soon after they moved into the home, the wife, she moved out and she left her family. <gasps> really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was like, hell no, I'm not living on no damn farm. Right. And she, so she just like, ended up joining a Pentecostal missionary in Tucson, Arizona, and she did sidewalk preaching. Okay. And that really devastated James. He was only seven years old, and James's father, Earl, 
He recalls finding James just slumped against the family's chicken coop and just crying. Aww. It was really sad, and um, it just made him into a really sad child, and he had very few friends. Yeah. Damn, that sucks. I, I feel bad for him. Like, as a child, of course, that's really tough to go through. Yes, it is. And um, so he was a sad little kid, but what he did like is he liked guns and he liked to do target practice. Oh, geez. (laughs) (laughs) That that took a quick turn. That shouldn't surprise you, right? Yeah, I guess not. He just gets super into guns and a family friend described James as, and I'm going to quote it, a queer little boy who practiced incessantly with a target pistol. Uh, no, I thought like <laughs> queer. Like, why did I? I at least thought, like weird, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But it's just like what an ugly word to describe oh, yeah. weird as back then, right? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. like when you watch those like old older shows from like the you know eighteen nineties or like we listened about cases from back in the day. They use that word so much. I'm like, man, that's not cool. <laughs> no, definitely not cool. Yeah. Um. And then there was another neighbor that described James by saying that Jimmy was a loner, not a bad boy, but someone who spent most of his time by himself. Mm-hmm. Those guns were about the only thing that he liked. Man, go get this kid some G.I. Joes or something. What the hell? Like, <laughs> Or like a toy gun, like <laughs> some Nerf guns. Why does he have some real guns? That's weird. I know. And maybe back then it was kind of like a Cowboys and like cops and robbers thing. I, who knows, right? I mean, and I guess living on a farm it's that seems normal you know to have like just kind of weapons everywhere like tools and stuff like that kind of a thing they, mm-hmm. they use i don't know i'm just trying yeah. to rationalize it but <laughs> right yeah no it makes sense but um by the time james hits his teenage years he was an amateur gunsmith um in high school he was bullied he was average in school meaning like he didn't get the best grades, but he also didn't get the worst. Mm -hmm. Um, He was described as being antisocial and he never joined any sports or any clubs. He just kept to himself. Okay. In 1962, James studied. So he graduates high school and then he studies at Malone College and he starts off studying sociology. And while he was there, he met a woman named Etna. They later do end up getting married. Um, But, you know, while he's in Malone College, he decides that studying sociology just wasn't for him. And he eventually decides to study at the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science. Oh. Yeah. I I, That shocked me. I don't know why. But um, he did graduate from there with honors in 1964. And he was issued a funeral director's license. And then the following year, he received his embalmer's um, license. I mean, that's kind of cool. It is. It's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a girl that I follow on Instagram. She's she's an embalmer, too. I don't know if you follow her, but she's super interesting, has a podcast. I'll share it with you later. Oh, okay. Is she from San Diego, too? Because there's a girl from San Diego who she recently was on, like, NBC – Uh, San Diego news and like she basically was like I think she's like 23 she's really young and she's like one of the best she's like a brand new um mortician kind of lady she and yeah she was uh, her interview was really interesting 
Oh, send that to me if you, if you can find it. This is a different person. Um, so anyways, uh, the following year in 1965, James and Etna, they get married and James started working at a funeral home in Canton, which is, you know, the town where he was born and he was really good at embalming and he really did enjoy doing that. But, you know, I did mention he's like antisocial. And so he really, you know, he struggled socially. Mm-hmm. Um, he was super introverted and he struggled when it came time for the part of the job where he had to like interact and speak with family members and the public and that sort <laughs> of like, stuff. He's like, God damn it. I thought I was going to be dealing with dead people. I didn't know I have to be talking to the living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he got a funeral director's license. Yeah. Right? Like, so it's like. Uh, <laughs> also to people who are alive Ugh, lame <laughs> <laughs> and the family members of like these deceased people that James was working on they did say that they thought he was just super um like he didn't show like he he cared like no feelings or anything like that yeah. and so you know he did do that though for two years until he decided to change careers and he became a welder um, he was working for a, cur- a firm out in Louisville, and he did that for two years until he decided to also leave that job for a better paying job with Babcock and Wilcox in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was by the that was do- going well. Things were going well for him, and by the mid 70s, James was making really good money. He was making around twenty five to thirty thousand a year, which in today's money it would be around one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Which, if you think about, like yeah. back then, gas wasn't sky high, food yeah. wasn't sky high. Um, so you know they were doing well, and he and his wife moved into a really nice home in a fancy area of town. Nice. Um, but not long after that, their home was destroyed in a fire, and I couldn't find out how the fire started. Um, but shortly after that, they purchased another home on the very same street. Mm. They also ended up building a six-unit apartment building, which they managed. Um, so they were also gaining income from that rental property with six mm. units. So um, the first, the couple had their first child, which was a daughter in 1972, and then they had a second child, another girl in 1974. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the outside, things seem to be going well for them, married, couple kids, living in a fancy home, in a fancy area of town. But um, James' neighbors, like his coworkers knew, like they noticed something was off about him and also his neighbors. They thought he was pretty weird. Um, They said he wasn't friendly with them, which I don't think is bad because I have some neighbors that I'm friendly with, but I also have some where we just don't even make eye contact. Like, do you look at all of your neighbors and talk to all of them? You know, what's funny. I was just thinking about that when you mentioned that I've never growing up, I think we've even as a family, like we never really talk to our neighbors. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe one just to be like, hi, or we'll like be like, "Eh, whatever, but no one like, some people are friends with all of their neighbors and are super right. friendly and this and that, but no, like it's normal. You don't have to be nice to everyone or talk to everyone. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's weird at all. Um, to be honest, I think there's probably only two neighbors that sell and I really talk to other than that. We don't, we don't speak to anybody. Yeah. Um, so they said he was just like super moody. Um, and the local police department, they did receive numerous phone calls about the Hubert, Huberty home 
they complained about um, the noise coming from their their home, and there was vandalism. Um, and then really? I guess James had like these two German shepherds that were very aggressive, oh, and yeah. he raised them supposedly to be like these attack dogs. Oh shit! Okay. In 1980, James was arrested after a disagreement that he had with a neighbor, um, and he was charged with refusing to quiet down. So I guess the officers were like, just kind of like, chill, calm down. Oh, and he was just like being aggressive and loud. Yes. Wait, so the noises they were talking about um, at first, was it like argument? Yes. So it was like arguing between James and his wife. Oh, okay, okay. And it's sad if you think about he has two young daughters in the home. Yeah. You know? So then um, the following year in 1981, Etna, the wife, was arrested on four counts of aggravated menace. Oh, my God. Apparently, she pointed a nine millimeter semi-automatic at a neighbor during an argument. Ah, what the hell? And so when I read that and then what I find out like later about her when she recalls the horrible act that her husband did. It's like, it's almost like she doesn't show any like sympathy or I don't know. Uh, it's not even remorse. Cause it's not her that did it. She just, I don't know. I, I don't know about this woman. Okay. Um, it almost seems like she defended her husband, his actions. Yeah. Oh no. So in 1982, James, he was laid off from his welding job after working at the company for 10 years and remember, this paid him really good money and, you know, got him a nice home, rental properties. Um, so when that happened, James became super depressed and he was worried about how he was going to make the mortgage payments on the home. Yeah. Um, and at this time, he became even angrier. He started to blame the government and just the whole country in general for what happened. Yeah. He said that Ronald Reagan and the government um, were conniving against him. What? Oh, yeah, first you're, actually, such an, you're such an important person. <laughs> they don't even know who the fuck he yeah. is, right? <laughs> At first, he actually blamed um, President Jimmy Carter, and then he blamed Ronald Reagan. He's like, he's like, wait, who's in office right now? Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's to blame. Yeah, that guy. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, he he was a nuts. Uh, he was nuts, but he also believed that a nuclear war was coming. He said that the wor- working class were going to have to pay for this inflation. So with these beliefs, he just started to purchase like a lot of like canned foods, mostly survival foods. That's like semi-true, but right. a little extreme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is very extreme. Yeah. Now remember, he since he was a kid, he loved guns. And as he grew older, the love for the guns just grew deeper and he stocked up on so many guns and ammunition. There was a friend, like I was surprised when I read this, a friend, I was thinking like he had a friend, but um, (laughs) there was a friend of James that said James' house was filled with shotguns, rifles, handguns, and Uzi semi-automatic weapons. Oh my gosh. And like, did he, he use them on target practices or like... Did he use them often or just clean them? Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I didn't read anything where neighbors or anyone reported of him shooting them or anything. Yeah. Um, But he had so many guns to the point where no matter where he was sitting at in his home, if he wanted a gun, all he had to do is stretch out his hand. Wow. 
Apparently, James kept all of the weapons loaded also, which is really scary because, like, he has children in the house. Yeah, there's kids there. They can just grab it. I mean, that's just scary to think about. Obviously, okay, yeah, you want to protect your home, have, like, a gun or two. But just having them loaded everywhere, Mm -hmm. all over, not in a locked box or, like, you know, unloaded somewhere, like, under your desk, that's just weird. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Um. So now, you know, James, he's without a job. He decided that it would be best for them to sell the homes that he owned and take the profit that he made from the sale and move to Tijuana, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Because he knew that he, if he moved there, the money would take him and his family much further. So he applied for residency in Mexico. Um, so they end up moving to TJ and they lived in TJ for about three months. Now, James nor his family spoke like an ounce of Spanish. That was my next question. I'm like, do they speak Spanish at all? (laughs) No. And he was trying to find a job in Mexico. Like, I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, of course, like it'd be great for someone to hire where they are bilingual, but how is he going to even, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, Such an annoying, like American mentality of like, well, why don't they speak English? (laughs) Like what? You're Mm -hmm. in someone else's country. (laughs) Like you're in a fucking Spanish speaking country. (laughs) Right. And it's, it's, I read that Etna and the kids, they actually liked TJ and they seemed to be settling in really well. But James, he just got really upset because he couldn't find a job. And also, why would you move there before finding a job? Like I would, you know, like you find a job, get interview, find a job and be like, okay, help me like move in and um, acclimate to this new environment. Like, it's annoying. Yeah, that was very foolish on his end. Um, So, you know, he got frustrated and decided, well, let's just move to San Ysidro. Mm Mm-hmm. So they moved to San Ysidro, which if for some reason there's a listener who's not familiar with San Ysidro. You know, it's in the U.S., just north of the Mexico-U.S. border. Yeah. So they move into the Cottonwood Apartments. And James did not like the fact that so many people in the community spoke broken English. Oh, my God. What is what, what do you expect? You're literally next to the border. You're a hop, skip, and a jump away from the border. What the fuck? Yeah. And like... And then he was in TJ. Why doesn't anyone speak English? Now he's in San Ysidro, a border town. Why are people not speaking English well enough? <laughs> like, what's Get your-, your ass back to Ohio. I know, for real. Stay in the Midwest. No one wants you here. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't want him either, though, in the Midwest. <laughs> They're like, no, you guys keep him. <laughs> Go to Yuma. <laughs> like... <laughs> uh, so, anyways, James was super rude to his neighbors. Um... And just, he didn't like anybody though. Like he just really didn't like anyone. So one day while in his San Ysidro apartment, he's looking through the newspaper and he's seen this ad about a federally funded program um, that pays for people to get their security guard license. Mm -hmm. And so he signs up for that program. And by April of 1984, he's working as a security guard for a security firm in Chula Vista and he was guarding a condominium um, complex. Okay. But James was fired from that job about a month later because he was he was fired due to poor f- performance and having like a, a really crappy attitude. Oh, okay. So on July 15th, 1984, 
James told his wife that he felt that something wasn't right with him. He thought he was having like some sort of like mental health problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple days go by. And so he phones a mental health clinic. And on the phone, he requested to get help because he had he was telling the receptionist he had these disturbing thoughts going on in his head. So the receptionist took down his information to um, hand off to a therapist mm-hmm. so that the therapist would call James and discuss, you know, the situation. Now, James was promised that he would receive a call back within a couple of hours. And before the receptionist hung up the phone with James, she asked him, is this a, an emergency? Because, you know, that's like standard practice. Yeah. Um, and he said no. And he told the receptionist that he's never been hospitalized for mental health issues. And he actually sounded like super calm. So the receptionist logged the call as non-crisis. And then they hung up. But when the receptionist took down the um, James last name, she wrote it down as Schuberty instead of Huberty. Oh, no. So Etna said that James waited near the phone for hours and as the time was going by, he was just growing really angry and impatient because he was promised a call within two hours, but apparently it was technically supposed to be 48 hours. Oh, okay. So um, he ends up leaving the apartment and then he gets back home an hour later and he's like much more calm and he's in a decent mood, she said. And so the family ate dinner together and then they rode their bikes to a nearby park, but it does turn out the mental health clinic did try to call James back within that two hour time window. But with the misspelling of his last name, it caused a mix up in their phone system. Oh, I see. Okay. So you can't help to think like, if maybe he would have gotten that call back, maybe he would have gotten some sort of help and maybe things wouldn't have happened the way they did. I don't know, right? The fact that he reached out and admitted that he needed help and he tried to get help, that's a big deal. Like It is. Because a lot of times, like, they don't. They just don't want to admit that they need any type of help in that way, mental health especially. Yes. So, like, that's kind of – I didn't even know that he did that. He yeah, did. and I, I forgot to mention there was um, – so, you know, James, he – did struggle with um, being short-tempered and he was just this really angry man. And so Etna would try to like calm him down because it is said that he would actually abuse his wife and the children and she would beg him to get help. And he was always against getting help until this day on July 15th, 1984. But before this day, something that started to kind of help temporarily is Etna, um, she tricked James into thinking that she could read the future and she would get out these like tarot cards. And so she would, you know, say these things to him about his future that were not true, but just to kind of like calm him down. And it worked for a while Mm -hmm. until it just stopped working altogether. Um, But anyways, the next Wednesday on or actually it was two days later then on um, July 18th, 1984, James, Etna and their two children go to the San Diego zoo. And um, while at the zoo, Etna said, James told her that he felt that his life was pretty much over. 
when she asked him, you know, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He said that he was frustrated with the mental health clinic's failure to return the phone call. And he said to her, society had their chance. What? And then he, he should have just tried to call back. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, it's Ronald Reagan's fault. And now it's the social uh, yes. worker's fault. Yes. So they finish up their day at the zoo, okay? And then they stop by a McDonald's in Claremont for some food. And then they go back home. Mm-hmm. And then um, soon after they returned home, James put on, so Edna was tired from the day, like walking all over the zoo. And so she just laid down in bed to relax. James put on a maroon t-shirt and camouflage pants. And he leans in towards her where she's laying down on the bed. And he says, I want to kiss you goodbye. And then she asked him, well, where are you going? He said, I'm going hunting, hunting for humans. (gasps) Oh, my God. He then left the apartment holding a gun across his shoulder. And he had a box of ammunition. And then he also grabbed another two guns. James started making his way towards the front door and he sees his oldest daughter and they make eye contact. And then that's when he tells her goodbye. I won't be back. Now, when I read that, I was like, what the fuck? What going hunting, hunting for humans? Why the fuck? Wouldn't she phone the police or something yeah, like that? I would immediately be like, no, you're not. First of all, give me everything like that strapped onto you right now. You're right. not fucking leaving. Yeah, because I did think like, well, maybe he's making this comment, like if she was used to him being such an angry, negative man, maybe these were things like she was just used to him making these threats. But if she actually seen him walking away with a gun and boxes of ammunition, I do not understand how she could have let him walked out that door. Yeah, what the hell? That's so messed up. At around um, 3.56 p.m., James drove to the McDonald's parking lot on San Ysidro Boulevard. Um, Now, this McDonald's, it was only 200 yards away from James' apartment. So it was very close. If you're standing outside the apartment door, you can see the McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Um, So at this time, there were about 45 people in this McDonald's. Now, there's an 11-year-old boy named Armando Rodriguez, and he was kicking around a football when he seen James pull up into the parking lot. He seen James step out of the vehicle with guns strapped around him and wearing the camouflage pants. And it was something that stood out to this little boy, Armando, and it just really confused him. He just knew that something didn't seem right. He's like, why is this guy who's trying to look like Rambo over here coming to his right <laughs> now? <laughs> Rambo. Um, so Armando kept an eye from the distance on James walking into the restaurant. And when James walks into the restaurant, he yells, get down on the ground and tells everybody, like, get down on the fucking floor. Okay. Mm-hmm. So everybody does as he says. Initially, I I think most people probably thought this was just a robbery, right? Yeah. So he aims his gun at a 16-year-old employee named John Arnold. And as that was happening, the assistant manager named Guillermo Flores, he seen what was about to happen. So he yelled to his coworker, hey, John, that guy's going to shoot you. And so James pulls the trigger, but nothing happens. Apparently, the shotgun was jammed. Oh, my God. 
So James, you know, he kind of stops and he starts inspecting his gun. And then the manager, who is 22-year-old Neva Kane, she starts to walk towards her employee, John. I think it was just to make sure that he was okay. And that's when James gets the gun working and he shoots at the ceiling and then he shoots Neva. Oh my! So she just kind of, yes. Holy crap. She was shot just right underneath her eye and she was dead within minutes. Oh my gosh. Of course, at that time, everyone's screaming and freaking out. And then James shoots John, who was his first intended victim in the arm and in the chest. So people start to try to run out of the restaurant, but he shouts for everyone to get down on the ground. The first phone call into 911 was at 4 p.m. And the first cop to arrive at the scene was Officer Miguel Rosario. The call came in saying that there was some sort of disturbance where a young girl had been shot. Um, So the officer truly had no idea of just what an ugly scene that he was going to be arriving to. Yeah. Now, there's two McDonald's, okay? So there's one on the east side and another on the west side. And when the officer was dispatched, he at first was dispatched to the wrong McDonald's. Oh, no. Which that, like... Every minute counts, right? That just delayed so much, and he's going to be able to get away with so much more shit. Mm -hmm. Originally, Officer Rosario went to the one on the east side, but the crime was taking place at the McDonald's on the west side. At 4.07 p.m., Officer Mike Rosario arrives to the scene. Now, again, he's thinking that he's responding to a single shooting. Yeah. Um, Hold on a second. Okay, once there, he can see people hiding behind cars and looking towards the McDonald's. So he knew that something was really wrong. So Officer Rosario standing in the middle of the parking lot, and that's when he sees the suspect, James. James was just coming out of, like, the side door by the drive-thru, and Officer Rosario sees James with a shotgun. And so the officer runs to hide behind a truck and calls for backup assistance because you have to understand he, the officer was only carrying a small caliber revolver that has six bullets in it. So it's not like he had much of a chance against James with his multiple shotguns and stuff. Hell no. Yep. And so James started screaming out to everyone inside the restaurant again. Um, But this time he was telling them that they were all dirty pigs, Vietnam assholes. He started telling everyone that he killed a thousand people and he was going to kill a thousand more. What? Wait, he's never in Vietnam, right? No, (laughs) he was, but he wasn't. It's like he's like pretending to have PTSD or like Vietnam flashbacks or something with his stupid army pants. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a very brave young man who was 25-year-old Victor Rivera. He went up to James um, and he was begging him, like, please don't shoot anyone else. Like, can you imagine how brave it was? Like, he's seen at least two people shot already. He tried to calm James down and plead for everyone's lives. And the piece of shit James told him to shut up. And he shot Victor 14 times. 14? 14. Oh, my gosh. So 
everyone's trying to take cover and they're hiding um, underneath the tables and chairs. They're running into closets and James shoots a group of six women and children. <gasps> there was 19 year old Maria Colmenero Silva, whom he killed with a single shot to the chest. 18 year old Jackie Reyes, 15 year old Imelda was shot once in the hand and wounded 11-year-old Aurora Pena was shot in the leg, but she was actually shielded by the 18-year-old pregnant Jackie. Nine-year-old um, Claudia Perez was fatally shot in the stomach, cheek, thigh, leg, hip, chest, back, armpit, and head. Oh, my God. An eight-month-old baby, Carlos Reyes, was fatally shot in the center of his back. <gasps> oh, my God. Little babies and children. Yes. 62-year-old Lawrence um, versus Luis was fatally shot, and then James heads back to the play area where he sets his sights on a family. Oh, my God, so, the play area. I forgot that those things existed because I don't think they yes. exist anymore. Like, I haven't seen no. them in a long time. <gasps> no, they don't have them anymore. So imagine there's all these kids playing. Like, of course, there's, like, families with, like, parents, kids, whatever, eating. But the play area, I don't know. Yeah. That just makes it so much worse to imagine, right? You no, know, like, these big, like, it's supposed to be a colorful, fun, like, happy place. And this guy's shooting down children. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yes. So he sees this family that's hiding for cover underneath the tables. And the parents, um, which is 31-year-old Blythe Reagan Herrera and her husband Ronald, they were trying to shield their 11-year-old son Mateo and his friend Keith Thomas. So the mom was like over hovering over her son to protect him. And then the dad was hovering over oh, the other little boy's friend. Yeah. Keith was shot a few times, but um, not seriously hurt, which, wow. you know, is the little boy's friend. Ronald was also shot at, but he survived. But the wife, Blythe, and the son, Mateo, they were sadly fatally shot. Oh. So the mom and son died, and the dad and the kid's friend oh. survived. Oh, my gosh. That's I can't so even cool. imagine even surviving from something like that, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, there were three women hiding underneath a table that were also shot at. It was 24-year-old Guadalupe del Rio. She was shot, but she survived. 25-year-old Gloria Ramirez also survived. But 31-year-old Aris Delcy Vargas, who was also shot in the back of the head, she died of her wound the following day in the hospital. Oh, my gosh. At another table, James killed 45-year-old Hugo Velasquez. And as this is all going on, um, a couple named Astolfo and Maricela Felix, they drive into the McDonald's, okay? And there is this documentary about this case called 77 Minutes, mm -hmm. which, by the way, I highly recommend watching. It's It goes into great detail. Okay. Um, anyways, in this documentary, Maricela talks about this tragic day. And she said that she and her husband were hungry and they were deciding on what to eat. She told her husband, like, hey, we should go get tacos. But her husband said, let's just grab McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So they go to McDonald's and they park by the post office, which is right next door. And Maricela picks up their four-month-old daughter. And so she's carrying the baby and they start walking towards the restaurant, not knowing what is going on inside there. And she said that's when she felt the gunshot. 
She said it felt like there was a bomb that had went off in her face. Oh my God. And she felt the blood coming down and she just like was holding on to her daughter tight. Um, and she ended up having, handing over the baby, which her name is Maricela. She handed, I'm sorry, Carlita, the baby's name is Carlita. She handed Carlita to her dad and Astolfo shouted to Maricela to run. And so she started running and he ran towards the post office. And I guess she ran towards the other side. Um, Maricela was shot in the face, her arms and chest, and baby Carlita was also shot in the neck, chest, and stomach, who was only four months old. Wait, so, oh, so she was shot in the face when she was holding the baby? Yes. And then the baby was shot at that same time that she was holding the baby, like right after she got shot. And so Astolfo, he was also shot the dad in his chest and his head. So he was really struggling with his wounds and he ended up handing baby Carlita to a stranger um, named Lucia. And he, so he handed the baby to Lucia, the stranger. And then ultimately Lucia handed the baby to an officer who then rushed the baby to the hospital where she miraculously survived at four months old. In fact, all three family members survived. Well, they did. Okay. Yes. Uh, Maricela, who talks in the documentary, she did end up, she wound up losing one eye. Wow. And um, one of her hands was wounded so badly where she can't even use it. Oh my gosh. That's awful. And she was showing like the scars that were left on her. Damn. Because of this. And the baby. That's, I mean, I'm glad they survived that. And later, actually, I did pull up an interview on, um, on YouTube where baby Carlita, who I think at that point when they interviewed her, she was 30 years old and she talks about that day. And she's like, you know what? Every day on the anniversary of it, I, uh, watch videos about it. And she's like, and I can't believe like I was there. She still has half a bullet in her head and then her and her mom actually have the same scar on their stomach oh my gosh Mm -hmm. so but the mom maricela it's it's so awful because you can just see the pain in her eyes and she's like you know all decades have passed by and i'm still suffering because of what this man did every single day I can't imagine being the people around, like watching him just shooting people and babies and children, just like wondering, okay, I'm going to be next or like, you know, what can I do to get out of here? But if I try to get up, he's going to shoot me like, and not what do you do? do. Yeah. So um, there were these three 11 year old boys who were riding their bikes around the area and they stopped by the Yum Yum Donuts, which was just across the street, to get a donut. And then they decided, because it was the summer, it was like hot, they decided they wanted to get an ice cream sundae. So they decided to ride their bikes across the street to McDonald's. As the boys were making their way towards the restaurant, not knowing what was going on, um, someone started yelling at them. Because at this point, nothing was like blocked off, okay? Yeah. So someone started yelling at them, trying to warn them of what was going on, probably saying, hey, go that way. Um, But the boys couldn't make out what the person was saying. So they continued on while James, who happened to step out into the parking lot at the time, he shot all three of those 11-year-old boys. And fatally? Um, While one of the victims, Joshua Coleman, survived, 
Um, he's also on that 77 minutes documentary. Mm-hmm. He says that all three were shot. They all um, collapsed down to the ground after being shot. He recalls seeing blood squirting out of his arm. And even so, like James kept shooting at him. And so he said his lungs started to collapse and it was really hard to breathe. He felt like he was suffocating. Um, He remembers after his friend David Flores was shot, he died almost immediately. But his other friend, Omar Hernandez, um, he didn't pass away as fast as David. It took Omar at least a few minutes. He remembers Omar crying for his mom. Oh, that is so sad. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And in that footage, you can see Omar's mom, like, arrive to the scene arena, and she's just, like, screaming and crying. Like, it's so sad. And at this um, point, there's only still that one officer. Backup hasn't arrived at all. Yes. Oh it's God. just that first. It, yeah. It's really infuriating. Um, So Omar, you know, he gets shot, and, and then he started crying for his mom. He started vomiting a lot, and then that's when he passed away. Oh my gosh. Joshua lay there on that parking lot floor playing dead for over an hour after seeing his two best friends murdered. Oh my gosh. Over an hour? Mm-hmm. So he was, what? Oh my gosh. This is all taking, well, well the documentary you said is called 77 Minutes. Yes. That's how long he was there just shooting people? Yes. What? Yes. There's just, a lot of people are super angry with how things like, Played out like with law enforcement and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, like what was going on? Why didn't they get there sooner? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, Officer Rosario was the first officer at the scene. Mm-hmm. Now James did shoot at Officer Rosario, but you know he went and he hid behind the truck. Yeah. So <clears throat> finally, a lockdown was enforced. Okay, six blocks from any direction of that McDonald's, they were it was blocked off. Okay. And they had um, set up a command post two blocks from the restaurant. And finally, that's when all the police officers start coming. And there were 175 police officers taking position like all around the area. Uh An hour after that, the SWAT team finally arrives. So James, he was shooting at everyone. um, And he's alternating between these firearms. So police at first, they were unaware of how many perpetrators were inside the restaurant. Because for all they knew, it could have been more than one person. And it was hard to tell because the majority of the windows in the restaurant had been shattered by the gunfire. Um, And so you know, it's safety glass. So that type of glass like shatters kind of like spider webs rather than like breaking apart and big shards. They can't even see through them anymore. No, they can't see. And it's summertime and it was a hot summer day. So the sun shining and reflecting off of the window, right? Yeah. Um, so it just made it really difficult for the officers to see exactly what was going on. Um, but what is kind of frustrating too, there was a person that did escape from the restaurant and they did give a good description to the police that it was just one gunman inside. He wasn't holding anyone hostage and he was just shooting at any person that he came across. Yeah. Um, described what he was wearing, but for whatever person, the police didn't go off of this person's word. I, I really wish that an officer just officers would have just barged in and shot, shot him. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like he's I'll- not holding anyone like saying here, come closer. If you come yeah. closer, I'll shoot this person. Like, yeah, like I get it. Like they have to, uh, 
protect themselves and they strategy of like how they're going to get in there and like kind of tackle him or try to get the gun away from him or something being risking the fact that the gunman is going to shoot them in the face instead of their body where they have like vests on. But to take that long to get there though, like is just kind of like, what the hell is going on? And at that point, I don't know if they're, if you know, what, what is this called? Is this called a massacre or is this called a a massacre? massacre? If that wasn't, you know, that common yet because right now sad to say it is they're everywhere and so maybe the police and SWAT are immediately like we know what to do and this and this and this maybe at that time they had no idea what the hell they were getting themselves into so maybe that's why they were like uh what do we do how do we handle this yeah right I I think you're right yeah um and it's so sad that it's just so common now, right? We're just well, yeah. so used to that. Now we're just like, oh, another shooting? Wow, that's mm-hmm. sad. Okay. Like, <laughs> we're so, like, desensitized to it now, which is awful. It is. Yeah. Um, eventually at 5.05, the, all law enforcement personnel, um, because remember the SWAT team is there now, mm-hmm. they all were given the green light, which means they were authorized to kill James if they were able to get a clear shot. So, cause, oh, cause that's right. Because back then you had to have been given the green light yeah. to shoot someone. So, so, you know, James is inside the restaurant and there's so many dead people, some who were just injured and there's still some who were alive. Well, um, there were some of the surviving victims that did say during this time, John, um, James brought in a portable radio and he was like switching through radio stations and they thought, okay, maybe he's just trying to see if all of this is being broadcast on the news or the radio or whatever. But no, this motherfucker was playing music and dancing around. What? In the middle of his dancing, he was just like shooting around at the walls, people, everything. Oh my God. This is what? No words. Disgusting. Um, so James, he starts to search around the kitchen area and that's when he finds six employees hiding behind the stainless steel partitions. And when he finds them, he gets really angry and he starts to shout, Oh, there's more. You're trying to hide from me, you bastards. And so he started to load up his Uzi and that's when they try to make a run for it. Yeah. Like a back door or something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, he shot and killed 21-year-old Paulina Lopez, 18-year-old Margarita Padilla, and 19-year-old Elsa Barboa Fierro. The others in that group, they were also shot, but they did survive their wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, they ended up just like running and hiding in a closet. Um, and they were waiting. And it was like downstairs. I guess it was like a basement, I think. Okay. And so they were hiding in the closet, just hoping and praying that help would arrive. Um, one of the employees in that group was 17-year-old Albert. Is it Albert or Alberto Leos? Um, he, he was shot, I believe, five times. But he was not able to get up and run away in the closet with his other coworkers. But while he was lying there injured, he's seen that James ran out of ammunition. And so he's seen that James had to take the time to like start reloading his gun. Mm-hmm. So Albert seen this as an op- opportunity to save his life and get away from James. But remember, like he was shot five times. So he was just like, he was really, really hurt. Yeah. Um, 
but he knew he had to push through it because he knew that James, his intention was to kill him. Yeah. So Albert somehow miraculously crawled down 25 stairs and he gets to the bottom of the stairs and he gets to the outside of the closet and he can hear voices up there, like in there, like his yeah. coworkers. And so he started to say, please like help me. But he was, he was trying to say it low enough where James couldn't hear him, but yeah. loud enough for the people inside. And so the coworkers inside, they can hear him asking for help, but they didn't know like what if this was a trick until one employee she talks on that documentary and that's when she said oh we recognize wait that's albert's voice uh -huh. and so they opened the door for him and albert crawled in he was really weak from his blood loss um, um but what he did was he used his shoelaces as uh tourniquets for his bleeding legs and arms oh, okay that's good and he said the pain was so bad that he had to use a cloth to bite onto so that James wouldn't hear him. Oh my God. I know. Like imagine trying to stay quiet while you have five bullets in you and you're bleeding. Like mm -hmm. God, I can't even. Ugh. Trying not to cry, trying to muffle yeah. your crying. Like yeah. I, I just can't. Um, James shot and killed. So, you know, Albert got away. He got into that closet. And then that's when James shot and killed 19-year-old Jose Perez. Um, Jose died next to his friends, which was 22-year-old Gloria Gonzalez and Michelle Carncross. Um, there was a woman that I mentioned named Aurora. I think I mentioned her earlier, but she had already been shot, and she was lying beside her dead aunt, her baby cousin, and two friends. Well, at that time, she noticed that there was like a stop in the shooting. And so, you know, she was closing her eyes, trying to play dead, when she hears the stopping of the shot, she thought, okay, let me open my eyes. Let me see. Yeah. And that's when she sees James nearby and he's staring her way. He sees her open her eyes. Oh, no. Once they locked eyes, he started cursing at her. He went and grabbed a bag of French fries and threw them at Aurora. Then he went and got his gun and shot the child that was right there, too, in the jaw, arm, and neck. Aurora got shot, but she surprisingly survived the attack. Oh, my God. At 517, James walked towards the doorway um, that was closest to the drive-thru window. And so the SWAT snipers, um, they were on top of, like, the post office roof that was right next door. And one of the snipers named Charles Foster who was on that roof, he had a clear view of James. Yeah. And he shoots and puts a bullet through James' chest. It clipped his spine, severed, severed his aorta, and James finally died. Damn, that one shot. Which he died immediately, which that bummed me out. I was hoping he suffered. Yeah, that's bullshit. Now, like we mentioned, this all lasted for 77 minutes. During that time, James fired a minimum of 257 rounds of ammunition, Holy killing shit. 21 people. And wounding several others. Holy shit. Now, something that was super frustrating is um, Lieutenant Jerry Sanders, who, you know, he was the lieutenant, like the higher up at mm -hmm. that time. I think he actually ran for mayor soon after that. Not sure if he won, but the name sounds familiar. Jerry yeah. Sanders. Uh -huh. It does, yeah. So people were really angry at him because they said he screwed up. So he was the chief of police at that time. And apparently, instead of being there at that scene 
right when it was all going on and they just saw that, you know, they really found out what the severity of it was. He was at a party. Mm. He was sipping on a beer on beer at a place called Salmon House and Marie Marina village at a friend's birthday party. I mean, um, back, and huh? he was, he was called and he, so he was paged back then, you know, no, yeah, oh, right, right, right. Page. Uh-huh. but he was paged. Um, he claims that he never received that page to his beeper. And apparently he wasn't aware of what was going on until a friend from the party told him. Um, so James was killed at 5.17 p.m. There were still some people inside of the restaurant alive at that time. Um, at 5.02 p.m., the second SWAT sniper team takes place on the... I'm just trying to give a timeline of events. I know it's sound, going backwards, right? So at 5.02, the second SWAT sniper team takes place on that post office roof. At 5.04, the sniper team asks if the, they got the green light, you know, yeah. which you know, they're authorized to shoot and kill. Well, Jerry Sanders, who is finally on his way to the scene at this time, he says, no, he reverses the green light and puts a stop to it, which remember, there's still some people alive at that time. Um, He says, no green light cancels it out. During that while, more people are getting shot, more people are getting hurt. And James is just shooting away. And it sucks because the sniper's hands, they're basically tied. They can't do a thing until given that green light by Jerry Sanders. Jerry gets to the scene at 4.15, I'm sorry, 5.13. And then finally he gives the green light. But that was an entire eight minutes later. Why Why did he want it to be there? I don't know. And a lot of people in like the, the family members of the victims and in the just whole San Ysidro community, that really upset them because they're saying like, you know, you should trust these employees enough to know like they are going to make the right decision and they wouldn't have went and like shot this person for no reason. Like it was eight minutes when something like that is going on. That's a really long time. Yeah. And these are lives we're talking about. Um, so then he gives a go. Okay. And then four minutes later, James is shot and killed. Um, when James autopsy results came back, there were no drugs or alcohol in his system, but get ready for this. His wife, Etna, she filed a lawsuit against McDonald's a couple years after it all went down, claiming that McDonald's food made him kill. What? She said it was all the additives in the food that helped trigger his violent outburst. And so everyone who eats McDonald's at some point is going to want to shoot people. <laughs> I haven't shot anyone and I eat McDonald's all the damn time. <laughs> me? The fries are addictive. If anything, the crime is that their food is fucking good. But like, so good. Too- so good. Yeah, I know. I can't. I, I mean, the fries are. The fries are really good. Yeah. <laughs> all- McDouble. The McDouble is pretty good, too. <laughs> Uh, oh, actually, the filet fish. I do love the filet fish. I've never had the filet fish before. So good. I'm scared to eat that, but it's good. You like it? I mean, I like it. Okay, I'll try. Because <laughs> they don't always have it, right? It's like one of those things where it's just once in a while. I think they have it on the menu all the time now, though. You I think do? it's like now the McRib that's like. That's what the one that's once in a while. I tried that one once. It was okay. I never tried that. I love the chicken nuggets, though. Same, same. 
Okay, okay. So anyways, <laughs> she sued for $5 million. What? what? And it's like, okay, if you're going to do that, she also needs to sue, like, if he ever ate Jack in the Box. Um, I don't know if he ate Cheetos. Like, yeah, you know, like, come on. Anything that we eat nowadays is basically has some type of additive or something to it. Mm-hmm. So wait, please tell me she did not win. Thank goodness she <laughs> lost the lawsuit. <laughs> but I think it's so gross that she even tried. I mean, earlier when you said something about how she was kind of defending him, like, yeah, that's the fact that she's trying to sue McDonald's or blame McDonald for what he did is ridiculous. Right. So, so talking about that, it was a year or two after what her husband did. Um, she was interviewed and she starts to like go on about how her life is now and how she's just struggling to organize her life. Um, she had just bought a home, which girl, you ain't struggling if your ass bought a home. But anyway, she said in the beginning, she was super numb to it. But now she said she's no longer numb. And it's just something that is on her mind often. Um, she said, I can't even forget about it if I try to, because nobody's letting me put this tragedy behind me. Oh, boo hoo. Exactly. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. She never showed remorse, like or not remorse. She never showed any sympathy to any of the victims' family members. Like she never apologized for what her husband did. Like what the hell? And like obviously, like it wasn't her fault. But like to be like, yeah, I don't. I'm sorry for the loss of all these people and this awful thing that my ex husband did. That or husband, I guess. Um, But. That's insane to me that she, or like, she could have been like, if I could go back in time, you know, when he told me he was going to go hunting for humans, I would have done something about him. And I I mean, she's seen him with guns and boxes of ammunition. I wonder if like, do you know if the, anything about um, race was was like a motive too because of his no because at first they were saying because you know it was predominantly Hispanic people but he just hated everybody because even when he lived back in Ohio he he was mean to everyone okay yeah um she said after the incident she and the kids moved with a friend in Chula Vista and then after that and I think the kids went under like different names And then they ended up moving to Spring Valley. Um, She said that they started receiving death threats. She was actually wearing her husband's watch during the interview. What? Which, Arena, if that was me, I would have fucking trashed everything, burned anything that belonged to my husband. She's like, she's like grieving her husband's death, but he, the reason why he was shot was because of this awful, tragic thing that he did. And it's like, you're not you're not allowed to be grieving and wearing your husband's like watch or holding on to a momentum of his like as if he was a good fucking person no he wasn't right right and she actually oh it just upset me so much she was describing him as a hard-working man who just fell on hard times oh my god this is so (laughs) it's like Everyone goes through so much shit in their lives and not everyone just their solution is to just start shooting people. That's that's what we always talk about with all these cases. Like everyone has free will. He decided to do this and you should not be blaming anything or anyone else but himself. Like exactly. His, his actions. Exactly. 
And she actually um, was working with a Hollywood producer to write a book and possibly make a movie at that time. And she was expecting it to make like all of this money. But thankfully, the community of San Isidro like came together and they were super against it. So the deal fell through. Good. Yeah. She was about to get a bunch of money from that. And at that time, she actually was saying, but I'm hoping that someone else reaches out to me so we can get some deal going. My gosh, that's so awful. Now, just days after the massacre, that McDonald's was renovated and they had plans to open it back to the public, um, you know, again for business. But two months later, they decided to demolish the building, thankfully. Yeah. And I think it was five or six years later, um, that's when they built the Southwestern Community College, like, satellite campus oh, on that site. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So there's uh, actually 21 pillars in memory of the 21 victims of this awful tragedy. Oh, oh I've seen it. I remember when I was taking one of my classes there, I remember seeing that. And at that time, like, yeah. that, I think that was probably the first time I heard about this case, you know, when I was in my twenties or something. But um, anyways, like that, like I mentioned that documentary 77 minutes is really good um, because you get to watch interviews with some of the victims. But I will say like, just be careful because it does like start off with footage of two of those 11 year old boys. Like it, it's a crime scene video and you can see some of the victims li- lying yeah. there dead. Oh, okay. Um, Where did but you in, watch it on? Um, shoot. I don't know. I, I have the fire stick or I think it was like the fire stick or something. Um, okay. uh, but, but one of the victims, Maria Rivera, she talks about it and she was there that day with her two daughters and she does talk about, and she's like crying in this documentary and she's just talking about how much this incident damaged and destroyed her life. She said that she often wakes up screaming in the middle of the night because she feels like she's going through it all over again. Um, She would just wake up like, drenched in sweat, crying as it just happened, as if it just happened yesterday. And she just talks about how, just how, um, how much it messes with you to see so many people die right in front of you, men, women, and children. I mean, I can't Um, even imagine. Oh my gosh. No nightmare. Yeah. Now officer Miguel, the one that was the first responding officer, he also speaks in that documentary and he just talks about what a mess it was, just how bloody, can you imagine how bloody, um, he said there was people running all over the place and you can see some footage of it. He said the very first group of people that he encountered looked like a family. He said one of the parents were face down. The other was like hugged up against her the spouse um, face up and their little infant was wedged down in between them. And you can see like in that documentary, you see the baby dead in between the parents, which is really, really hard to see. Oh my gosh. And then remember Albert Leo's the one that um, had been shot five times and then called his way. Okay. So he also talks in that documentary. He was an employee there. Um, He talks about how um, it was his first job, and he says he actually wasn't going to go in that day. His friends had invited him to go to the beach, and he said there was just something in him telling him not to go to work that day. But he said the way he was raised, you know, his parents taught him, like, no, you go to work. You can't miss work unless you're sick. Um, 
So he decided not to call in, and he said he remembers when that guy, when um, James first started yelling, he thought that James was there to rob the restaurant, and then he just talks about he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what the future was going to be. It's just he said he said a quick prayer, and this is what his prayer was when this was all going on. Mm -hmm. God, give me the strength to get through this, to see my family one more time. If you keep me here and give me a second chance at life, I'm going to do something good in my life. Well, he actually ended up like now he's a cop with the San Diego Police Department. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, I do want to also say one of James's daughters, uh, Zaida, I think, what is no, Zelia Huberty. Mm -hmm. So she was only 12 years old when her dad did what he did. She spoke out to Vocative, which is a media and technology company, gave an interview. Um, and this was, I think, 30 years after what happened. She said, which I'm so glad to hear this. She said that if she knew what her father was planning to do, she would have killed her father herself. Is she the one that made eye contact with him before he left? Yes. <gasps> oh, my God. She says, because um, remember, their apartment was only 200 yards away, but yeah. she said she remembers having a perfect view of what was going on. Oh no, like, God. and she had a feeling it was her dad in there. She's seen everything. She's seen people that she knew, people that she went to school with. She did admit that when she was seeing it all go down, she at first thought better them than me. She's like, well, that's something that most 12 year olds would say, but I was thinking, well, that's not something I would think. But, anyways. <laughs> Um, she did admit it was a horrible thing to say, but she hates what her father did. And she says she now works as a nurse because she wants to help others. Damn. So I'm glad um, she didn't take after her mom. Right. Or right. Dad, I guess. And I wonder what her relationship is like with her mom now, right? Like, I wonder if she has a lot of anger because they all were abused by James and the mom like stayed with her, their father, despite what James was doing to all of them. So she might have a lot of resentment, right? Probably. Yeah. Um, but again, just another warning that if you watch that documentary, you know, there's, it, it is pretty hard to watch. Okay. Um, you, you know, because even the opening, it starts with the 11 year old boys that were gunned down, like I said, yeah. but anyways, that was the case of James Huberty, the McDonald's killer. Oh my God. Like, obviously I, I know about it. Um, I think a lot of people do. I, mm -hmm. But I didn't know, like, all the details. And I didn't realize that there were so many, like, children. Right. I, I didn't know. Like, I knew nothing of, like, who he was, like, what his upbringing was or anything yeah. like that. Um, but I think everyone can agree that James is a fucking monster. Yeah, dude. What the hell? This is insane. And... Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, there was a lot of people upset with the way the um, the police department like handled everything with like such a big gap, you know, time, yeah. like so much time going by. Um, so at first, the police department stated that everybody that was either killed or injured within the restaurant had been shot by James in the initial minutes after he first entered the restaurant. So that's what they were saying, right, to like mm -hmm. protect themselves, I imagine. But it was the survivors said that's not true. Damn. They said that he had, James had shot 
and um, like wounded and killed it, killed people over 40 minutes after he first opened fire. So, oh God. you know, yeah, and he had time to like choose the music and dance around and just like start shooting random objects and stuff like, right. He was just literally just doing whatever he wanted with no one trying to stop him. Mm hmm. Yeah, so it's just, you know, every single case is so sad. That just made me even, I don't know, it felt so sad to me because anytime it's like victims and, you know, it's elderly people, which I think I forgot to mention, and it's just hitting me now. But there was an elderly couple in this documentary, um, one of the surviving 11-year-old boys talks, and there was this um, elderly couple that were walking into the McDonald's when all of this was going on, not knowing what was going on inside there. And the older man opened the wife, I think he was 74. He opened the wife for his 69 year old wife. And when he opens it, James shoots his wife, <gasps> killing her. So the old man kneels down, you know, trying to help his wife confused at what the hell just yeah. happened. And then he looks up. And when he looks up, he start he sees James with a gun and the old man is just shouting at him, cursing at him. Yeah. And then James shoots and shoots the old man too. Oh so it's just a piece of shit. No, no remorse, no nothing. Nothing. And it's so infuriating that he I'm I'm so glad that obviously he ended up getting shot. But you know, I do wish that he would have suffered for a while, or maybe yeah. he could have gotten shot gotten shot on his legs somewhere just to get him down while they rush him and let his ass rot in prison. Yeah, for real. Because I, that was just too easy of a way to go. Yeah. And like, yeah, I definitely think there should have been a whole trial and he needed to listen to the victims like family statements and you know, face what he did and right. like show, be shown all the victims, like in their photos and who they were and stuff so that he has to just face what he did and, you know, repent. Right. Right. So that was the case, Serena. Oh, Thank you. Thank for, God. That was I know. So awful. Such a sad people. case, but yeah. you know, um, obviously rest in peace to all of the victims. Yeah. Like, Feel so bad for the entire victim's family members. Um, and yeah, thank you to everybody who listens to our podcast. Yeah, yeah thank you. Arena. We're always so weird when we close out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is difficult to say. But uh yeah, that was a crazy case and that was that was really good, well told. Um mm -hmm. and yeah, I like I said, I didn't know all the details of the massacre and um I, I do want to watch that documentary though. I'm going to look it up and, yeah. but yeah, thank you guys for listening and for following us. And um, we hope you, uh, I don't have a nice night. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of you guys who listen, please like help us out. And, you know, I know it's so annoying and probably, yeah, it's just probably annoying hearing us ask this, but I will ask, like, please, like, like or rate, I don't know, on the damn Spotify shit, but, like, <laughs> it'll really help us out or comment on our post on Instagram. Yeah, and, like, tell people about our podcast so we can yeah. hear a little bit more. And we'll, we're going to keep trying to uh, release more episodes. We just both were sick, uh, so right. we didn't do anything for a while, but we're back, so. Yeah, we're <laughs> back. Hopefully it'll be more frequent. And then yeah. also... You know, at some point, Arena's going to tell a story. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, it's been a while. So um, I do want to do – there are a couple of San Diego cases that I have 
on my list that I definitely want okay, to talk good. about. So maybe next time um, yeah. we'll see whoever um, has one ready next. But okay. yeah, thank you guys again. And we hope you enjoyed. Bye. Bye.